everyone. Welcome back to But What Will People Say? I'm your host, Disha Mystery Mazeppa. Welcome back, folks. It's been an eventful week. Lots of news and things closing and coronavirus things. And I'm going to keep this podcast going because luckily I don't do it in person. Almost all of our guests are Skyped in, including our guest today, Rabia. Um, if you would like to be a guest, reach out to me. You can email bwwpspodcast at gmail.com. Um, I have a lot more free time now because I can't go into work. And unfortunately, I don't work remotely. So give me something to do, folks. But anyway, getting on with it. Um, we're on week three of our Women's Wellness Collection. Our guest this week is Rabia Bauer. She is a registered dietitian. We talk about South Asian diets, common misconceptions, ways that we can stay healthy, which is so important at a time like this. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As always, you can find us on all major streaming platforms. Leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe if you're enjoying the show. And yeah, here she is. Here's Rabia. Hi, everyone. We're here with Rabia and she is a dietitian and nutrition specialist. And I'm going to let you tell us about yourself. All right. Thank you so much. So my name is Rabia Bauer. I'm a registered dietitian and I'm licensed in the state of Pennsylvania uh, where I live right outside of Philadelphia. I am a Hayes dietitian and Hayes stands for health at every size. Basically what that means is I'm not going to judge you based on the shape or size of your body. And I love to help people eat healthy food. Awesome. So there's, I'm assuming, like different forms of practice with nutrition, and I'm guessing Haze is one of those frameworks you can work with. So how does that kind of, how, how do you take that and like put it into practice? Yeah, so exactly to your point, there's different styles of advice and different ways you can give nutrition counseling. For a long time, dietitians were very weight-focused. So if we're talking about ways to measure your health, weight being one of those metrics and that if you're not a certain weight, you're not healthy. When um, someone is a haze practitioner or a non-diet dietitian or body positive, these terms are sometimes used interchangeably. What that means is that they are going to look at you holistically as a person and use other metrics to measure your health, whether that's your blood pressure or your blood sugar or your cholesterol things that vary person to person. So when someone comes to me and says, I want to lose weight, first we talk about why. So is it a vanity thing? Is it they're feeling pressured? Did their doctor tell them they had to? And more often than not, what's happening is they have some sort of disease. So whether it's high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, diabetes, uh, a heart disease, and they've been told they need to lose weight to fix that. But how you lose that weight or how you change your behavior is really important. So it's like the journey is important, not just the destination, right? So you can lose weight by going on a shake-based diet and cutting your calories drastically. But what we found, especially with people with diabetes, if they do those shake-based weight losses and they really restrict their calories, they may lose the actual pounds off their body but their overall health and their overall blood sugar is actually worse. So as a non-diet dietitian, as a Hayes advocate, I'm going to talk to you about the health habits you can start doing to improve your health, whether that results in weight loss or not. 
because certain bodies will do the same things and some bodies will lose weight, some bodies will gain weight, some bodies will stay the exact same, but there's research-based behaviors that we know can improve health. Awesome. And what are some of those research-based behaviors? Absolutely. So for most people, it is eat more fruits and vegetables. Um, Here, Americans, we do not get enough. So the average um, American eats one to two servings of vegetable, fruits and vegetables a day, and the guidelines are three to five servings at a minimum. Um, sugar-based, sugar-sweetened beverages like sodas or sports drinks are Americans' number one source of calories. And we know that when you have that much simple sugar in your diet, it's just not doing your health any favors. So not to say that you could never have a soda, you could never have a sports drink, but helping people find an adequate balance to incorporate all those foods. Um, Also, you know, we're not getting enough sleep. We're far too stressed out. These non-diet related, not symptoms, non-diet related conditions also affect your overall health. So while there's different specialists for stress and sleep management, if you're talking about the food portion, which, you know, everybody has to eat everybody's eating at least two to three times a day minimum. I'm here to help people find the best food, the best plan, the best, you know, mixture and balance of foods for their health. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's like a very well rounded sort of approach to take. The stress (laughs) thing is a big one. Yeah, stress is a big one from what I've found. Like people I know that like, even like with my husband, when he was like super stressed out with work and stuff, like his, you could tell his health kind of took a toll. And then as soon as he left that job and like made some changes, like he, we were good again, you yeah. know, he like without really trying kind of started losing weight and stuff. Not that like he gained a lot, but like it was still noticeable. Yeah. Um, and that's like, in retrospect. That's, a, that's a normal stress response, right? So stress is the number one indicator of a heart attack or heart disease. And then when we're stressed, there's all these hormones going on. A lot of people stress eat, myself included. So if you're stressed out, your health is going to take a toll in a variety of ways, for sure. Yeah. So what are some, like, common nutrition issues that, like, the South Asian community faces? Yeah. So for some reason in our community, we have incredibly high rates of heart disease and incredibly high rates of diabetes compared to the general population. And, you know, some of that can be attributed to lifestyle and diet. There's some interesting research that some of that's attributed to our genetics. Um, But really, especially in older adults, we see high rates of heart disease and diabetes. And older adults, I'm talking like over 40. So when we're talking about the general population, when we're talking about the general population, older adults, we're talking like 65 plus. For some reason in South Asian communities, these diseases are hitting us younger and younger. Oh, wow. Yeah, when you said older adults over 40, I'm like, I don't That's think- not old. Yeah, that's yeah. not that old, but it's like, for some reason, compared to other populations or just the general population, these inc- incidences of disease are just happening much sooner. Yeah. How much of it do you think is genetic? Because coming from like a background and also in the medical world, like a lot of emphasis is put on genetics where like if you're genetically prone to something, that's always the first question your doctor asks, right? Like right. Oh, is there history of heart disease, cancer, whatever. That's their first question. So there's a lot of emphasis put on it. Do you think, how big of an impact do you think genetics makes? 
Yeah. So unfortunately, we don't have like a percentage or a number. We just know that if you have a higher risk for that disease, if there's a genetic, you know, if, if it's in your genetics, if it's in your family history. So what that means is really we should be looking at preventative measures immediately if you know there's a genetic risk for that disease in your family. Um, genetics are something you can't control, right? You can't control who your parents are. So it's really just an awareness thing. Like you need to know about it and then figure out, well, what steps can I take proactively to either decrease my risk or increase my longevity or just overall have a healthier life. Mm -hmm. And is there a difference between men and women? Because at least in my family, there is. In terms of your genetic risk? Sort of. And like women in my family just live longer. Yeah. Um, And like, even though like we have heart disease in my family, only the men have really been impacted by it. The w- yeah. I mean, maybe we're just less conscious of it. Maybe the women aren't going to the doctor. Yeah. Like you could factor that in. But, you know, no female in my family has ever had like a heart attack. Yeah. But my grandpas have, right? Right. So we see this in the general population too, that men are hit much younger. So A, women just live longer than men in general. There's a lot of reasons for yeah. that. But, you know, I essentially women just have longer lives kind of across the board. Men with heart disease are hit much sooner compared to women. And I think the other half of that is the women, the symptoms for women and heart attacks are not well known. So the symptoms for men and women for heart attacks are very, very different. Men have, you know, that tingling in the left arm, the tightness in the chest, the shortness of breath. But for women, our symptoms are very different. And that was only really made, people were only made aware of that very recently. You know, throughout history, so much science and medical-based research is based on men as the default. Mm -hmm. But it's very different for women. We're just different. You know, we have different bodies, different needs. We do different things. And from a health standpoint, our symptoms are just different. So for women, when they're having a heart attack or having a heart issue, It kind of feels like the common cold, just a little more fatigue, um, just tired, headaches. And I mean, I know for me, if I get that as a mom, I'm just like, well, (laughs) just another day. Yeah, just another day. I don't think, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Now, luckily, I don't have a high risk for that. But if you come from a family with a high risk of heart disease and you start feeling those symptoms, it's worth getting checked out just in case. So I think it's twofold. I think, A, women are living longer, which we know. We know that men get um, incidences of heart attacks or heart disease much earlier. But I think the second half of that is women just aren't taught to recognize their own symptoms of illness. Yeah. And I think you're right, because that is part of why I did this, like, women's wellness series is so much of the research is based on, like, middle-aged men. Yes. And we are not the same at all. (laughs) And so we just present very differently, even in my own experiences, like when I have ended up in the hospital and things, they kind of look at me and I get a lot of like children's doses because I'm just so small. And it's not really a children's dose, but it is a lot lower dose for medications and things because it takes almost nothing to make an impact on my body. Even with like painkillers with me. I know like the dose will always say like you have to take two times and I'll, I'll take one and I'm, I'm good. Right. You know, I, it just, you know, adult strength Tylenol for me is just too much. Like I'll get nauseous if I take two. 
Right. And so I just take one because just knowing my own body and being aware that like sometimes like I have to know when to make the changes. And even though like I'm not a doctor, I sometimes take it upon myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know your own body better than anyone else, right? Like, let's start there. You know your own body. You've lived in it your entire life. And I 100% agree. Like, the studies and the dosages for adults have always been middle-aged white man, or white men, excuse me. And guess what? I'm not a middle-aged white guy, so. And neither are most patients. Exactly. Exactly. Like, there needs to be some room for variation and personalization, which is what I love about nutrition. So good nutrition is for everybody, but good nutrition looks different person to person, right? Like what works for you might be different than your husband, which would be different than me, which would be different than my husband, because we're all individuals. Yep. And so going off that, why, not why, but like, where would you find reliable information? Like if you were giving your patients a place to look, where would you tell them to go? Yeah. So the big thing about nutrition and and food is everybody eats, right? So everybody thinks they're an expert. Unfortunately, that's just not true. Um, If you're looking for good, solid nutrition advice, you want to look for someone who's credentialed. Um, In America, you're looking for a registered dietitian. So they should have the letters RD after their name. If you're looking for just general nutrition, things like the American Heart Association, which is a .org, right? Or the American Diabetes Association, which is also a .org. You also want to look for sources like choosemyplate.gov, which is the government's recommendation for healthy eating. So those, what's good about those is you can trace them back to the sources of funding and the sources of the study. So all of those websites are going to have links to where they actually found that information. When you start looking at sources that charge an access fee or sound too good to be true, they probably are. So if someone says you'll achieve this health parameter, but you have to pay $35 a month, right away, I'm really suspicious. So, and I'm talking about charging for like the food or a pill or a product, right? If a dietitian is charging for his or her services, that's a different story. But if someone says you can lose 10 pounds in 10 days with this shake that costs $2.99 per shake, Right there, I'm very concerned because it's too good to be true. It's not healthy weight loss, and they're charging an access fee for that product. Yeah, and one thing, a topic that has come up a lot in this series, especially the skincare one we just did, is medical misinformation. Mm -hmm. And like you said, everyone eats and everyone has an opinion. And right now, you know, with the social media side of things, there's so many opinions. Yes. And everyone has a detox and everyone has yes. like a juice, a juice cleanse. And yeah. what do you do with all of that information? Because they'll sit there and they'll be like, you know, all these people lost so much weight and all these people had positive, positive results. And like yeah. this influencer is using it and we all want to look like that influencer. Right. Right. Is there any validity to any of it? Is it just marketing? So it's mostly just marketing. You know, if if that person is an hopefully an ethical person with integrity, you know, if it's on Instagram, they're going to say it's an ad, right? They've been paid for these services or a lot of those weight loss programs you'll see in really, really tiny font somewhere on that advertisement results, not typical, right? So they're, they're very tiny. They're very hidden, but they will say, this is not average. This is not typical, or I was paid for this service. 
So some people just have kind of that ideal body, which is changes, right? Generation to generation. Some of these influencers are just in right now, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the tea or the detox or the meal or the shake is giving them that body. They were just kind of genetically blessed. In terms of those detox teas, those irritate me so much because if if you have a working liver and you have working kidneys, your body is detoxing. You don't need, yeah. yeah, like you don't need an herb. You don't need a root. You do need to drink enough water. Like, let's start there. You need to have an adequate source of fluids for health. But there's no such thing as a tea that actually detoxifies your body. Like your kidneys and your liver do that for you every day, no matter what. <laughs> I always give all of our guests the chance to rant their, their moment Thanks. out about <laughs> the you. things they see on the internet that are wrong. Yeah. There's just so much of it. So, so like, like, at least it's just credentialed people. So I'm like, yeah. you, can, you can rant. Thank you. Thank you for that. Like, honestly, if you enjoy tea just to enjoy tea, like, please have a cup of chai. But if you think it's going to give you, like, this magical body or, like, an perfect skin, hand, perfect lose skin, weight, like, it's, glowing. it's not going to do that. It's just hopefully you think it tastes good. That's all I can say. Yeah, right. Like, maybe it'll got you to drink more water. Exactly. That's, that's probably the only reason it might be working. Exactly. If it forces more healthy fluids into your system. I yeah. could stand behind that. Like tea is tea. Like you can't really overdose on it. Right. As long as it's like a, a real food source. Right. So as a dietitian, what I love to tell people is that I'm always food first. If you're going to try to prevent, prevent a disease or become healthier, I want you to use a food source before you go to a supplement, before you go to medicine, not to say that there's not value in those. But if there's a way to use food first, that's the way I'm going to promote. Yeah, for sure. Um, what are so looking at like a South Asian diet, which at least for me growing up was a lot of roti, mm-hmm. a lot of rice mm-hmm. and a lot of fried vegetables and then calling it vegetarian. Right. <laughs> like. Glad that's not let's say calling french fries a salad right right not really the same mom my mom my parents are still on it they so I wasn't raised vegetarian um but now my parents in the name of health have decided to become vegetarian because in our community there's this very common idea that if you're vegetarian by default you're healthier than the rest of the population right which at least from my perspective and this is just my opinion like I don't think that's true Well, I mean, there's definitely benefits to a, so we like to say plant forward, like a diet that's Mm -hmm. really focused on plants, but exactly to your point, South Asian diets are really high in in carbohydrates and processed carbohydrates. It's white rice, it's white flour, um, a lot of deep fat fried foods, which are still vegetarian, but aren't necessarily health helping. Um, but there are a lot of benefits to the South Asian diet too. So let's start with the benefits and then we'll kind of go with. The, the things that need improvement. So one thing I've loved about a South Asian diet always is it's so high in herbs and spices, mm-hmm. which we're seeing so much more research about how those are so good for you, right? So you think about turmeric, which is, I feel like the basis of most dishes. Um, it is an anti-inflammatory herb, uh, an anti-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory spice, excuse me. Um, and then just, you know, my mom growing up would always put cilantro and parsley and all these fresh or dried herbs and spices into the food, 
which not only tastes great, but we're seeing now that there's tons of health benefits. So I would say that Eastern medicine (laughs) has always claimed that there's all these health benefits to eating certain foods, you know, based on your signs or your, you know, whatever. Western medicine is finally catching up and having those scientific claims behind it. So turmeric's a big one. I get so many people asking me, well, how much should I take? What should I do? And my answer always is, there's no therapeutic dose yet. Like with medicine, there's a therapeutic dose. Take this, this will happen. With something like turmeric, there's no therapeutic dose. But what we know is that uh, cultures that have a lot of turmeric in their diet, like South Asian cultures, show lower rates of inflammation and show lower rates of things like arthritis. So because it's a food, add it to your food liberally, right? So there's a lot of benefits to all the different types of produce we use in South Asian food, all the different herbs and spices. The other half of that is we love our rice. We love our roti. Like we love eating a lot of those foods. And it's, it's a little imbalanced sometimes though we have such a focus on carbohydrates or, you know, deep fat fried foods that it can become a little imbalanced. Mm-hmm. And going off of the carbohydrates, there's the other camp that falls in like all carbs are bad for you. And they try to do like the low carb thing. How does that work? Where does that come from? And is it valid? Yeah. So, you know, right now there's a ton of fad diets out there that are cutting all carbohydrates. And really it's about the quality of carbohydrates. So carbohydrates in your diet are your number one source of energy and carbohydrates are any grain products. So rice, bread, pasta, carbohydrates come from your fruit as well. And your dairy products like milk and yogurt also have carbohydrates in it. The key with your carbohydrates is you want to make sure they have fiber. So that's a whole grain option in terms of grains. Those are the ones that have fiber. So switching from white rice to brown rice, um, choosing a whole grain flour if you're able to, and just making sure you have fiber in your diet is what's going to make those carbohydrates healthier. One thing that does come up a lot, or this is, I guess, like a new thing. I have a lot of questions mostly because I'm so into like health and nutrition and working out and all of that. There's this other camp. There's a camp for every opinion in nutrition I found. So sorry if I bring up like every devil's advocate question I can find. No, please do. There's the the camp right now that I recently read about that says your body can't digest fiber anyway. So what, like almost in a sense that like, why are you eating it? Is it really doing anything for you? What? Where does that come from? Yeah. So your body can't digest fiber, which is actually the point. Um, so fiber, we don't digest it. And what it does is it it bulks up your stools. It moves everything through. And certain fibers actually help remove some of the cholesterol from your body. So you're right. We, we can't digest it. But that's kind of the point. Okay. Um, as it moves through the system, it's it's just kind of helping move things along and, and certain fibers again, pull out or work against that cholesterol in your body to remove it from your system. Okay. And what kind of fibers or where would you find those fibers? Like what kind of foods? Yeah. So there's two types of fibers, soluble and insoluble. Most foods that contain fiber have a mix of both. Um, one example that I use a lot. So if you're familiar with Cheerios, 
and they have the big heart on their box. And the type of fiber that's found in oat, which is the base of those Cheerios, there's actually been studies that show it helps with your heart health and it helps with your cholesterol. So the specific fiber in there is called beta-glucan. What I don't think people need to do is go research which foods have beta-glucan in it. What they need to do is have foods that contain fiber. And again, the foods that contain fiber naturally are going to have a little bit of both. So again, whole grains, things like brown rice, whole wheat flour, whole wheat pasta, oatmeal is naturally a fiber-rich food. All your fruits and vegetables have fiber in them. So whether you're doing a fresh vegetable, a canned fruit, a frozen vegetable, they're all going to have fiber in them. Awesome. Good to know. Yeah. Um, on the another thing, again, if you're like me and super nerdy about these <laughs> things, the turmeric, which is very anti-inflammatory. I've also read that it impacts why we have such low rates of things like Alzheimer's and stuff, because I work with a lot of like, not anymore, but used to work with lots of patients with Alzheimer's and dementia. It would come yeah. up a lot. But something that comes up with that is the bioavailability of those things. So meaning, can your body use it? Like you could put it in your body, you can eat it. But if you're not combining it, I guess, with the right things, it's not doing anything. Is that true? Or just like is putting turmeric in our food enough? Yeah. So again, there's no there's no therapeutic dose of turmeric. So even though you can buy a turmeric supplement, we don't know how effective that is because supplements aren't regulated in this country. Yeah. Bioavailability, I mean, that becomes an issue. So that's like a per person thing, mm-hmm. right? So that becomes an issue whether you're eating the food or taking a supplement. How much are you actually absorbing? And there's so many things that affect that. So the bioavailability can be affected by other nutrients you're consuming. It could be affected by how stressed out or tired you are. It can be affected by what else you're drinking with that meal. And there's no affordable, easy test that we could give to a population that shows their bioavailability at any time. So as someone who's food first, my thought is, again, eat as much of it as you want. It's a food product. It's not going to hurt you, right? Sprinkling turmeric over your eggs or mixing it in your sag or however you're choosing to eat it, it's not going to hurt you because it's not a supplement. You're just including it in your food. And again, those population studies, when we look at South Asian people in general, because their diets are so high in that, we think it's the turmeric and the other anti-inflammatory spices that are giving them that health benefit. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Um, So another thing that we, the general population, tends to struggle with is nutrition labels and what they mean and how do you read them and I'm only now getting comfortable reading them I'm that person who walks through Whole Foods and has to like look at everything excellent on the nutrition label and you know there's lots of people that will give you their like tips and tricks and how to read them um what is just like an an easy way to break that down and what do you really need to know from all of that information that it does provide Yeah. So I'll start by saying the nutrition label is tricky. Um, As part of my job, I teach like a whole one hour workshop on just how to read a food label. The good thing is they are standardized and they do have to all have like the same information. So they have to include fats and sugars and proteins. But the key thing about the food label is to look at it as a whole. So a lot of times people will say, oh, I just picked this up and it's low in sugar. or I picked this up and it's high in protein. 
or I picked this up and it's low in fat. But you really need to look at everything in relation to everything else in it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're yeah. not eating just the protein or just the fat from that food. The number one tip I have with the food label is to look at the serving size. Nobody looks yeah. at the serving size. They just pick it up and start reading the nutrients, which is really important. But it's also important to know how much of that food has that much nutrition in it. So people will be surprised. There's um there's a canned tea that comes in like a tab opening and the serving size is a third of that can. Nobody yes. drinks nobody drinks a third of that can. If you open something with a tab, you drink the whole thing. Yeah. Right? So you're looking at those numbers and if you're not looking at the serving size, you might think, "Oh, this tea only has 10 grams of sugar." But you need to multiply it by three. It has 30 grams of sugar because there's three servings in that can, right? Even soda, like a soda bottle, a 20-ounce bottle, it's 2.5 servings. So mm-hmm. that is my I've number. seen that. Yeah. That's my number one tip. Like you might think, oh, this is a low-fat food, but it's only if you eat half of that portion. Yeah. Yeah. I also notice a lot of it in like you know, a lot of people go for the bars, right? You go for like the protein bar after your workout, whatever. Yeah. And it'll be like, there's 10 grams of protein in this. And then you look at the sugars and it's like 25 grams of sugar. And I'm like, that's not doing anything for you. So there's, so those bars and, you know, anything that has a protein supplement, protein tastes horrible, like as a supplement. So manufacturers have to disguise that flavor and sugar is the number one way to get that in. And even like something like that says it has 10 grams of protein. That sounds like a lot, but an eight ounce glass of milk, like one cup of milk has eight grams of protein. Yeah. So you don't necessarily, you know, the average person who's working out, unless you're a bodybuilder or like you're actively looking to gain a ton of muscle like that, foods that have protein are probably fine, whether that's a glass of milk, like low-fat milk, um, a piece of chicken with your dinner, some fatty fish as part of a meal. There's enough protein in those foods that even if you're working out on a regular basis, you will be getting enough for your body. Cool. So what's what would, again, kind of a broad question, yeah. but like a range of or like a ratio in terms of like carbohydrates and processed sugars that are in or on a nutrition label. Um, What would be a good ballpark at least to look at? Yeah. So these are both, both ranges that are very personal. So especially something Mm -hmm. like carbohydrates, it's based on a lot of things, including like how active you are. One thing for sugar. So the American Heart Association has come out with guidelines for sugar And their current recommendation is in relation to added sugar only. So this is the sugar you add to your coffee or if you're having something like a brownie, you know, something where somebody has poured sugar or honey or molasses into that product. So their guideline is no more than nine teaspoons per day for men and no more than seven teaspoons per day for women of added sugar. So that's not sugar from your fruit. Again, this is sugar that's being added to your diet. And that sugar includes things like honey, agave, molasses. Those are all broken down to sugar in the body. Um, Is one teaspoon one gram? One teaspoon is is four grams. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay. No, because I'm thinking in terms of like a nutrition label, it's yes. usually in grams. Yes. Okay. No, you're 100% correct. So one teaspoon is four grams of sugar. And you just, you want to really limit your added sugars in mm-hmm. your diet. Yeah. So like for women, it's probably like 28 grams yeah. of added yep. sugar. Of added sugars. And some food labels have started including added sugars, which is really nice. Um, something like a yogurt does have some natural sugar in it. And you wouldn't want to count the natural sugar. You would just want to count the added sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now there's a big push um, like on the whole foods. That's like a big diet thing too. Like the yeah. Whole30 is yes. really popular right now. Um, and that I've never done any diet ever, but I do tend to kind of like give myself guidelines just for my own sake. And one thing I try to do is stick with like whole foods, like things that are like one ingredient or that if I'm reading an ingredient label, that all of the ingredients are just regular food, you know, like in a sauce, it's like tomatoes and salt and pepper and, you know, whatever. Right. Um, Good rule to live by, average rule to live by. (laughs) So the thing with, so I like that you talked about guidelines, right? You talked about with your own diet, you're following guidelines. They're not necessarily hard and fast rules. And my issue with a lot of diets is they have very restrictive rules. They cut out entire food groups. And and that's when I get concerned because each food group, there's a benefit to it. In terms of choosing foods that are less processed, absolutely, I would support that, right? So I mentioned at the beginning, almost all of us need to eat more fruits and vegetables, which are single ingredient foods typically. To your point about the sauce, like making sure you can tell what's in it that's really important with that being said sometimes there are you know scientific names for some things that are very very common so you can't Mm -hmm. be scared of what's on a food label but really the guidance is to stay away from foods that are ultra processed so again choosing whole foods whole fruits and vegetables it's okay if they're canned it's okay if they're frozen choosing things like rice or pasta choosing proteins that are just kind of what they are. Um, But staying away again from really ultra processed foods is going to help most people's health. And what exactly would you say is like an ultra processed food? What are those things? So when I think ultra processed food, I think of like boxed macaroni and cheese, right? So not the frozen dinner section. Yeah, the frozen dinners. Not that you can't have those foods, but like the boxed macaroni and cheese, that cheese I'm putting air quotes up like it's not it's not cheese it's not really cheese now if you make a macaroni and cheese at home and you're using pasta you're using milk you're using actual cheese I'm all for that I wouldn't call that ultra processed but anything where like it's a powder and you add water to it or just something that doesn't look like what it was before it was processed. So it's typically boxed items. It's typically frozen items. Sometimes it's canned items. But what another hallmark of ultra processed foods is they're going to be really, really high in salt. And that's another concern as well. So um, Americans, again, we're eating far too much salt compared to what we need. And these ultra processed foods are going to be very high in salt. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the stuff I feel like even my mom kind of raised me not eating right um but like being married to someone like Mike who was raised on like the American diet where he was like my first time having a dinosaur chicken nugget was like two weeks ago yeah (laughs) 
And Mike's like, my mom used to buy those for me all the time. All the time. All the time. And like, I was like, I'm not going to lie. They're delicious. Love me some dinosaur chicken nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> but my mom growing up would like refuse. She's like, you are not. Because I always wanted, you know what I wanted? Those little TV dinners with the dinosaur chicken nuggets and that yep. pretend brownie in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. The Cosmo brownie. And yeah. I would like have this fit in the supermarket about it I'm like all the other kids always have them and they always talk about mom's like you're not eating that like that's not real food yeah my big thing was lunchables I always wanted a lunchable and my mom was like absolutely not never had those you know if I'm being totally realistic I have a six-year-old daughter she has eaten dinosaur chicken nuggets she has taken lunchables for lunch but it's not very frequent like she sees lunchables as a treat and like I'll say I'll use them on the weeks like work is incredibly busy and I just don't have time to pack her a lunch. So has she had them? Yes, because I don't Mm -hmm. want her to miss out on that experience. But she also knows like this is not our default. This is not what we're going to have most days. We're going to have it on the days when mommy's life is crazy and daddy's life is crazy. And one Lunchable is not going to kill you. Right. Like my mom raised me on a solid kind of line of everything in moderation yes that it has been like ingrained in my head right I could tattoo it on my forehead right like I'll tell you honestly I eat dessert I eat some sort of chocolate every day same every day not a ton of it and like I prefer dark chocolate or like chocolate with nuts but for me like I need something sweet yeah at some point in my day that's balanced out with a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables it's balanced out with a lot of lean protein that's balanced out with whole grains. And to me, that's doable for most people. Like you can yeah. have something sweet every day. Just make sure you're also having things that are really good for you. Mm-hmm. And one thing you talked about is like the behavioral changes. It's not always just like what you eat, but like your relationship with food and the behaviors you associate with it. Yeah. What are some small changes people can make that can have a bigger impact in their diet? So one thing I encourage everyone to look at is their sugar and salt intake. So sugar and salt are things you can kind of wean your palate to accept less of. So for example, I love my mom. I love my nanny. Every time I go to their place and eat, I come back so bloated because there's so much salt in their food. Don't get me wrong. It's delicious. But like for the week I'm visiting them, I'm like, I'm very thirsty and I'm very bloated and I have to come home and kind of wean myself off that salt intake. So if you're someone who really enjoys, you know, salt on your food, if you salt your French fries or you put a lot in your cooking, can you reduce that by half and see if it's still acceptable? Same thing with your sugar. If you're someone who needs sugar in your coffee or sugar in your tea, can you reduce that by half for a week? And see if that's acceptable. And then can you reduce it again the following week? So going cold turkey with salt and sugar is really, really hard. But the less you consume, the less your body wants it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of like the big salt and sugar. And then just really being conscious of drinking more water. You know, as Americans, we're chronically dehydrated. If you're not already looking in the toilet to assess your health, you definitely should. Um, but drinking lots more water and just more fruits and vegetables. Awesome. Yeah, the little changes like that I've done too. I cut out like adding sugar to things and like overly sweet things. And I'm such a foodie. Like I love to bake. I love to like do these things. But 
I've spent the past few years, like, I don't add sugar to my coffee at all. Like, yeah. I'm, like, the boring person who's, like, can I just have a black coffee? Like, like do you want Nothing sugar? Nothing wrong no. with that. Like, no. Sometimes I'll put some milk in it. I like milk once in a while. Yeah. But I rarely, I don't drink soda really ever. Um, sugary drinks, not my thing. But just time, my taste buds have also changed. So, like, now when I have something that is sweet, I have a very low tolerance for the sugar so like coke and things are too sweet for me yeah they make your teeth hurt yeah icing is like clawing in my mouth I just don't like it anymore and so even when I bake and stuff like I rarely eat what I bake I usually just sell it or I make a blog post about it whatever um I give it to my cousins but even then I put a lot less sugar in all of it and most people still enjoy it right because they're so used to like that boxed cake mix or the you know store-bought muffins and things and I'll make it with half the sugar or I'll substitute like applesauce or put Greek yogurt in it instead of something and they have they're like this is so good it's like light and dainty and not so like I'm sucking on a lollipop but I'm eating a cupcake like and you kind of get used to it you do Well, and here, like, our American taste buds are so accustomed to things being overly sweet and overly salty, Mm -hmm. right? So Europeans who come here, they'll eat, like, our sliced bread from the grocery store, and they're like, why does this taste like cake? Because we put sugar in our sliced bread. Yeah. We put sugar in hot sauce. We put sugar in lots of things. <laughs> yeah. It, so when I like went through my phase of like learning about nutrition labels and stuff, that was one thing I really noticed is we put sugar in things that don't even need sugar. Right. Like right. hot sauce. Right. Exactly. And like sriracha to me, I also love spicy food, but sriracha, I could taste the sugar in sriracha. Right. It's so sweet. Yeah. And you realize it's like pumped with it. Right. Right. And, you know, again, it's okay to have those foods, but just like be aware of what's in your food. Yeah, that was a big eye opener was learning to know what is in my food and what I'm eating and realizing like there's a lot of random stuff in this that I didn't know existed or couldn't even taste before. Yeah, for sure. So it's tough. It's definitely not an easy topic to like consolidate into like one podcast episode no (laughs) Um, there's a lot out there there's so much out there and you know like you said earlier just finding reliable sources is really what's key right and what are some reasons people could seek out a dietitian because it's not just weight loss like you do no um so you know if you are looking there's so many reasons so most people will get referrals from their doctor if they have a disease like heart disease diabetes Um, if the doctor thinks they need weight loss related to those, if you had mentioned it really briefly earlier, if you're concerned about your relationship with food, a lot of people have very, very complicated relationships with food. So ideally we, we just eat because we need the energy because we need to live, but people eat for a whole variety of reasons beyond that. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like you have a strained relationship with food, looking for a non-diet dietitian or a haze-aligned dietitian can help you understand that relationship. And, you know, whether it's you're a stress eater or you use food for comfort, which are all normal coping strategies, 
the thing is recognizing that you're using it as a coping strategy and trying to see if there's something healthier you can do to cope besides just eating, right? Mm -hmm. Because stress is part of life, but food doesn't necessarily always need to be the solution. So, you know, for that, if you're just looking for um, advice on how to diversify your diet or balance your diet, a dietitian can help with that. I do a whole bunch um, with picky eating. So families that are dealing with picky eaters and what's within normal and what's not. Um, any disease state, you had talked about Alzheimer's late earlier. There's a diet out there called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D. And it's been um, proven to help delay the onset of some of these uh, brain diseases like dementia or Alzheimer. There's a diet called the DASH diet which is dietary approaches to stop hypertension and it can improve your heart health. So if you have any interest in getting reliable evidence-based nutrition information, I encourage you to seek out a dietitian. A lot of insurance companies will cover like two to four visits per year with a dietitian as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's good to know. Our insurance covers so many things we don't know that they cover. I found out mine covered chiropractic appointments, and I was like, "What? Mm-hmm. I've Covers been missing physical out." Physical therapy, therapy too, occupational therapy. You have like thirty yeah. hours or something a year, thirty yeah. or sixty. I think OT is like sixty. It's amazing. Yeah, definitely look into your insurance because you would be amazed. I think HR at your company or your job is usually responsible for telling you what it's what is covered. Um, depending on the state you live, you might need a doctor's referral. Or you might be able to go directly to that person without a referral. I know mental health services are more and more covered nowadays as well. Um, Definitely. PT and OT, because that's what the world I work in. In New Jersey recently, you no longer need a doctor's referral. Oh, good. You can just go straight to a PT and, you know, they can decide if you really need PT or not or OT, same thing. Um, Because a lot of times the referral for our end will just say eval and treat like there's no Mm. diagnosis there's no reason for being there they're just like the doctor was like you probably need an OT but the doctor doesn't know why you need an OT right my prescription all it says is eval and treat which you no offense like the doctor didn't need to write didn't need to write that right right you're just like you could have just come here yourself (laughs) and we could have told you if you needed us right well, that's great uh, to hear it's covered mm-hmm. and, Lots and that you don't service. need the diagnosis code anymore. Mm-hmm. If you have a diagnosis, it helps with re- reimbursement and stuff with insurance. But um, if you're just going for like some pain or things like that, you can usually or like athletes, a lot of times it's like they know they need to see the PT. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, we have very like specialized groups we see. So they generally know when they need us and when they don't. Yeah. Um, One other one other thing about dietitians, I just I wanted to throw out there. I haven't mentioned this. I work for a grocery store, so there are dietitians. You know, you can go through a doctor's office. You can through go a private practice. A lot of grocery stores are hiring dietitians too. So while they might not be able to do like a one-on-one appointment with you, they're there if you need them or if you have questions. Um, Anywhere that there's food there's likely to be a dietitian on staff. So like even fast food restaurants, they have a dietitian somewhere on staff. All the food companies, a lot of them have a dietitian who represents them. 
But if there's food involved, there's probably a dietitian somewhere in that company. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So like cool. for certain food brands, like, you know, I'm friends with the dietitian for a certain yogurt brand and for a certain tuna brand. Like we're all we're out there. You just got to find us sometimes. How can we find you? Do we just go to like the supermarket? Um, so, yeah. So I cover like a series of actual stores. Um, I have my public-facing Instagram and my public-facing Facebook page, which are just my name, Robbie Bauer, R-D-L-D-N, because I'm really boring and not creative. Um, But so many of us are getting on Instagram. So many of us are on social media. Really, if you type in, you know, like the name of your town and registered dietitian, a bunch of people will probably pop up. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is part of registered dietitians credentialing body and they have a find an expert option so you type in your zip code and it'll list all the uh, dietitians that are registered with the academy that's helpful yeah yeah um where else can where can we find you on social media you said you're just rabia bauer rabia bauer rabia bauer yep so you know nothing exciting um i will say i'm the only Robbie, a Bauer dietitian that I know of. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I haven't found anyone else. So Instagram, it's just my first and last name, Robbie, a Bauer, RD. Um, Facebook, it's Robbie, a Bauer, RD, LDN. If you're in any of the social media groups that Disha and I are in, it's pretty easy to find me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You're also the other co-founder of Sawir. Didn't like yes. that. Yeah. yeah. So Deepa and I started that. I think under a year ago still, and it has just taken off. Yeah, it's really turning into a big group. I feel like every every day there's a post like, I'm new here. I'm like, we're just getting new people constantly. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So we really started it because she had posted in Little Brown Diary about her amazing interracial relationship. And her and I did not know each other before that. And we just went back and forth on Facebook and decided like there needs to be a a group for this, a support group for this, because so many women are in that boat. And I mean, we hit over a thousand members in nine months and we we get requests daily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's such a need for it. Like there's no other group like you guys. Not that I found. Yeah. I mean, and that was the thing I told her, I was looking for one forever. And because we didn't find it, we were like, all right, we're going to make it. Yeah. Same thing with this podcast. Like there's just nothing else really talking about it. Yeah, but agreed. Yeah, we have to have you on to do one of those episodes too and tell <laughs> us about your cuz you oh, have I, kids, right? Yes, I have a daughter. She's 6. Yeah. Um, so we can, that's like a whole realm we haven't discussed really on the show yet is yeah. people who like are like already years into this. The majority of people, I feel like even in the groups are still in like are my relationships a secret or I just like me, like just got married. So like we haven't even tackled that whole boat of like raising a child. Yeah. um, In like an interfaith or interracial household. So yeah, we'll have you back on. Awesome. Sounds good. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next Monday. For those of you who are new to this neighborhood, we release episodes every Monday morning. And we'll continue to do so for as long as I can. Um, As always, stay safe, wash your hands, be nice to each other, don't be mean. And if there's someone who needs help out there, reach out, say hello, call your family, FaceTime them. And we will see you again next Monday. Bye!